invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 18. Uh, the epistle reading is going to be our sermon text for this morning, where we see Paul serving Christ in the city of Corinth. He's departed the city of Athens, and Paul takes up shop in a most a vibrant and important city of his day by the name of Corinth. And he spends over a year and a half helping to build a, a newly budding church there. And, and we get a sense of his love for this people and this place as we have two letters in our Bible attributed to, to Paul's writing to and corresponding with this Corinthian people. And to give you a, a taste of what some of that sounds like, here's what he says in his first letter to them. Paul writes, he says, I give thanks to God always because of you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an affection, a warm love for a people, and a confidence that God has begun working in them, and He will continue to work in them until He brings it to completion. Paul is a good pastor, and he's serving a good God. And we see today why Paul is so grateful for this people. And how it is that he remains so confident that God will both guard and guide his people always. So to that end, will you join me with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, which is living and active, and we have access to it so freely. Would you pour out your spirit upon us now that we might be softened to receive that which you have for us. Our ears might be opened and our lives, therefore, conformed more into the image of your dear son in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, cliches are often overused, but there's always a bit of truth to cliches, otherwise we wouldn't use them, right? So there's, you know, if you talk with any sporting event, there's no I in team, right? That's true. Good grammar. That's true. Uh, misery loves company. I don't know why it is, but that's true as well. We're better together. These are things we hear and say, and it's true. Life together and all of its hiccups and all of its headaches is indeed far richer than life apart. Now I look at some of you who I know to be introverts and when I say this thing about community, you're like, whatever. There were moments in the pandemic you thought you'd reached euphoria. <laughs> Extroverts, however, might echo Winnie the Pooh as he talks with Christopher Robin. Winnie the Pooh's thought about isolation, he says this, yes, indeed. Christopher Robin, we can be alone as long as we can be alone together. The question is, what will sustain a life of following Jesus, of bearing fruit for Jesus as individuals and as a body? I think that's a question we need to wrestle with. There's a lot of answers to that, or ways to answer that. What I want to point out today from Paul's time in Corinth is simply this. We see today that, that community that is rooted in the promises of Jesus, provide hope to carry on. That's as simple as you're going to get, right? Community that's rooted in the promises of Jesus, provide hope to carry on. That's exactly what Paul is doing as we turn the pages to Acts chapter 18. And we see the, the, the carrying on in verse 1, and we see the promises in verse 9 and 10. So 18, verse 1 reads this way. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now look down to verse 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, 
for I have many in this city who are my people. Community rooted in the promises of Jesus provide hope to carry on. The promise is that here is that God will sustain Paul, that God will continue to bear fruit uh, through his life and through his ministry if Paul simply remain where he's at, remain faithful and active in service to his king. And that's what Paul does. For a year and a half, Paul carries on. So we're going to travel to Corinth, and what we see is, is a flourishing community. If indeed at that time all roads lead to Rome, perhaps we could say all commerce travels through Corinth. It's situated on a major trade route. Uh, Corinth was hel- uh, thoroughly Hellenistic, which means it was Greek, uh, so think Greek there, and it was uh, thoroughly hedonistic. Maybe you could think Las Vegas, if that helps. It's a Roman colony and it had two major seaports which attracted the life in which all active seaports draw. It was a melting pot of cultures and of race. It's a playground for philosophies, a hosting of world-class sport and military might. If you were looking to influence far and wide in any region, you would go to a place like Corinth. And so Paul does, verses 1 through 3 again. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, working and serving God together here. Everywhere Paul goes, you see this. Paul builds a team. Whether they be exiles and outcasts or those faithful, Paul builds a team working together, serving together. History does record for us various edicts of Roman leaders, and Claudius wrote several edicts to exile Jews from Rome, from Roman provinces in the late 40s AD. And so we have some hints, even in some of those edicts, that Some of the the, the exile of the Jews was due to their conflict continually with one of their sects that talk about a Messiah, Christ. Perhaps that's part of this exile. Whatever the case, a certain Aquila and his wife Priscilla are forced from their home in in the the region of Pontus, which is by the Black Sea in northern Turkey. And they're forced from there and they, they go over to Greece and from there they settle in Corinth. And Corinth becomes their new Rome away from Rome. Aquila and Priscilla, and soon Silas and Timothy will join them. Aquila and Priscilla become Paul's Corinthian squad, if you will. And these two can work. And Paul shares their knack for making of tents and other goods that were bought up in bulk by the Corinthian people. uh, For their own military purposes, for their homes, for their businesses. It was stuff that was demanded by a transient crowd. So it's important to acknowledge here, Paul worked hard at this vocation. He says to the Thessalonians in a, in a letter, letter that he worked hard, he labored hard so that he wouldn't be a burden to this people whom he sought to serve. I think it's important that we acknowledge that Paul worked hard at his vocation of tent making. For Paul, being a tent maker was more than a missionary junkie working to get his fix on preaching, as important as all that was to him. 
He worked diligently. He worked hard to take hold of God's good created order, the stuff that God has made. And he worked hard to make it more glorious. Serving together in Paul's life was more than soul hunting. It was a holistic approach, validating the good in all of God's creation. So as you read the book of Acts and you think to yourself, man, I am not Paul. And that's a good thing. You don't become dismayed or discouraged because of the fact you're not a Paul. God is still working through you as you honor him daily in faithfulness to the vocation in which he has called and placed you in. David was a warrior, poet, king. So Paul is a tent maker, apostle, preacher. Your work matters for the kingdom's sake. And Paul builds his team around this in Corinth. A community rooted in the promises of Jesus, providing hope to simply carry on. Verse 4, we hear a familiar strategy for Paul. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Following his usual pattern of, of to the Jews first, then Paul, uh, his team expands from Aquila and Priscilla here in verse 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. There is kingdom work of malediction, a strange work of pronouncing judgment and condemnation. It would fit well into the imagery from Ezekiel's letters uh, where he has a watchman on the tower and those who hear him, then Ezekiel's watchman, he's innocent of their blood, but if, if he doesn't say anything, then, then the blood guilt lies on them. Paul is saying, I've warned you and you refuse to hear and now your blood is on your own head. As if to echo Nehemiah. Or Jesus' command to the 12 and the 72, where the garments are shaken out as, as, a, as a visual demonstration of God's judgment upon them. That they would be shaken out and emptied. So if we think back to last week's sermon, remember Paul is crossing bridges philosophically to, to, to stand on common ground with those he differs with. And he stands ground with them, common, trying to bridge a gap between what they worship and the worship of the triune God. And here, he's been doing that. He's been trying to build bridges, but now the bridges have been burned. He severs ties with them. He shakes his garments out and said, I'm going to the Gentiles now. Jesus, too, severed ties at times with hard-hearted Jews. And Jesus' life is being lived out through Paul and company. Now, it's not something that we take lightly. And there's no fixed set of rules. Here's when you part ways. But there are times when fellow followers of Jesus must sever ties. Trusting those they've been speaking with and, and trusting God and his severe mercy to bring life to dying souls. And life does grow in Corinth. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. And he left there. Went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. There's kingdom growth happening here in the midst of persecution. No matter how great God's people fail of being light into the nations, God will always gather people 
from the nations. Jesus himself said, I have other sheep not of this fold. He says, I must bring them also. So Paul trusts that this is true. He does his work that God, that Christ might bring his people, his sheep, into the fold. This man, we don't know a lot about Titius Justice here. He's a God-fearing Gentile by name here, it seems, now become a follower of Jesus. And there's a note that our author gives us that his house was, was right next to the synagogue. Those in the synagogue continued to reject the Messiah Paul preached. But right next door, they begin to follow. It's as if it's a, a reaffirming that, that God is telling his people that he will make them jealous by his work amongst the nations. From Moses' day, through Jonah, through the life of, of Jesus, and now to Paul. It's as if God is saying, as he did to Moses, I will make you, Israel, I will make you, my people, jealous of those who are not a nation. A foolish nation, I will make you angry. Those of the Gentiles, those non-Jews who are flourishing in the life of Jesus would spur on those who reject him. And at least one synagogue ruler does accept Christ, does devote himself to following Jesus. There's a certain Crispus, a synagogue ruler who now follows Jesus. And, and, and Paul, it says in his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul affirms that he baptized Crispus and his household. Yeah, not only Crispus, but his household as well. All those under Crispus's roof were baptized, regardless of the fullness of their understanding of who Jesus is in the gospel. Nor is there firmness of belief at stake here, but there's, uh, they enter Christ's kingdom and his rule through the waters of baptism. Whether child or slave, with Israel through the Red Sea, as an infant and Gentile would have also walked with them in that situation, or as the glory cloud in the wilderness would have descended upon them. So Crispus's house, whether child or slave, family member or servant, passed through the waters of baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul is persevering in kingdom work. Community rooted in, in the promises of Jesus provide hope to carry on. And that hope is bolstered by the words or the vision that Paul receives in verses 9 and 10. Follow along with me. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. This is his third vision here. Uh, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. It goes on to say that Paul spends a year and a half with this people. He gives himself to God's work in Corinth for over a year and a half. Why? Well, God commissions him. God commands him in this vision to stay put, to press on in kingdom work. For no harm will befall Paul. Now, that promise wasn't given at every place Paul went, was it? In fact, Paul, prior to coming to Corinth, he already had known uh, much tribulation and much suffering. And in the places that he will go after visiting Corinth here, he will suffer dearly. And we can understand why Paul might be tempted towards silence, even in Corinth, as things seem to be going well. He's got enough evidence already that he should fear injury, perhaps, as he preaches the gospel faithfully. He could maybe fear public shame, which was not uncommon. Uh, he, he could definitely fear being hated and chased away. That was the whole pattern as he went over to Macedonia. Everywhere he went, he was chased away by 
uh, rebellious Jews. Now, perhaps he feared no more fruit could be won. Maybe the, the work was drying up, so to speak. Or maybe it was just time to leave. Whatever the reason here, God is giving his servant exactly what he needs to bear fruit wherever he's at. And so God gives in a vision, a command to stay put, do not fear, and to press on. And, and God gives him this promise. He says, I have many in this city who are my people. Can you imagine from that very word there, the energy to continue in service to the king, a motivation to press on. I have many others here. They'll support you. They'll turn to me through you. The firmness of hope to bear fruit as they declare Jesus in his way, his love, his grace. We have promises similar to that, and we tend to forget. We simply don't believe it to be true that we could be used by God in a, a like manner. But we learn from Paul as he sought to press on, rooted firmly in the promise that God gives him. He's surrounded by a team who's eager to continue to work in word and in vocation. Community rooted in the promises of Jesus provides hope to carry on. And God does provide his promised fruit and his promised protection, and maybe from unexpected places. Look at verse 12 and following. But when Gallio the, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, it's got to be a pretty powerful man if you're going to keep Paul from speaking, right? Interrupted Paul, wanted to defend himself. This Gallio that appears on the pages here, we know that he did sit in Corinth's highest seat of judgment before a court of justice in the years 51 and 52 A.D. Paul and his company are rooted firmly in the, the annals of history here. Once again, wherever Paul goes and the name of Jesus goes, Jews are seeking to squelch gospel growth by declaring that its messengers are breaking the law. That the message they're proclaiming is, is contrary to the, the law of Rome. As Jesus was charged for the claim of being a rival king to Rome, so Jews in Corinth claim Paul's preaching is serving a similar end. But our Roman judge Gallio, he'll, he'll, he'll hear none of it. He hushes Paul before he gets a rebuttal. And then he silences Jewish claims. Verse 14 and following, this is from Gallio. He says this, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. There is confidence here that is passed on to the Corinthian church, that must be passed on to the Corinthian church, that, that, that the God who has begun a good work in them, that he will bring it to completion. God promises Paul that, that, that God will protect him, that God will bear fruit in and through him. And in maybe seemingly the most unlikeliest of places, Paul, Paul, Paul finds protection from harm, and then he finds permission to preach from the Romans themselves. And it's not the first time this has happened. Throughout the book of Acts, Jesus' followers are continually harassed by rebellious Jews while they find Rome their protector. There is hope to persevere here. There is hope for this Christian, this Corinthian church 
to persevere. And it's fostered in, in being rooted in the promises of Jesus to advance his kingdom regardless of any opposition, regardless of all opposition. The kingdom of Christ will stand and will advance. Now, it doesn't seem like this is always the case, I understand. Paul suffers immensely, and his teammates suffer with him. Look at verses 17 and following, a strange passage in some ways. And they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any, any of this. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. The motive to beat Sosthenes is not really clear. There's a few options. Maybe this, this beating was an attempt to provoke a riot that would, would, would manufacture or instigate a Roman response, maybe. Maybe this a beating is, is an attempt to shape a Jewish ruler who did not squelch this uprising. Or it could be that, that this man too had begun to follow Jesus and so they made public spectacle of him. We don't know. Whatever the motive is, injustice is perpetuated here. Jesus' followers are vindicated and set free to continue to preach and to serve their king um, while rebellious God-fearers stand condemned. God protects, provides for, even promotes his children in the eyes of the world. Paul does in other places suffer immensely, and his teammates do indeed suffer with him. Why? Because they follow the man of sorrows. Because their king is also God's suffering servant. The word they proclaim is about the Lamb of God who was slain. And so to follow in the footsteps of their king means that they too will encounter sorrow, suffering, and persecution. Instances like this in Corinth provide hope that God has indeed begun working in their lives through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that he will bring that work to completion. It was true for them in Corinth, and it is true for us today, that the blood of Jesus will never fail. So the word, I think, from our passage today is a word of hope and a word of exhortation, which aims at the same thing. People of God, carry on in your service to your King, Jesus. Press on in kingdom work as you press in to Christ as you hold fast the promises of his word. Now, there will be seasons where we have to get creative when it comes to community. The pandemic has taught us that, if nothing else. Life seasons change. Sometimes distance geographically grows and challenges us. Seasons of life change. Societal shifts require adaptation. And yet, Paul's message throughout his time in ministry in Corinth is this, that community rooted in the promises of Jesus, provide hope to carry on as they remain rooted in Jesus himself. So as we remember Jesus, his life, as he's walked this earth, his life was one of bearing fruit where he was reconciling all things into God through his very life, his death, and his resurrection. His dying in our stead not only gives confidence that he can bring others to good life, but that other, with confidence that he will uh, do that work that others will be covered in the blood as we have been. That his resurrection provides confidence for us, that, that, that he lives and he reigns. He's conquered death and the grave. What can he not do? What will he not do to further his kingdom and glorify his name? 
And he's ascended now. In his ascension, he reigns. And that reign gives us hope. When all of life seems uncertain, tipped on its head, out of control, we remember that we have a king who is ascended and reigns over all of creation. And the word that he gives to Paul, I think, is of great hope to persevere no matter what life brings us. He says to Paul, I am with you. Community rooted in the promises of Jesus provide hope and to carry on. So people of the risen king, we rise together in one voice to praise our king. We feast at his table to be strengthened to serve. We depart this place in his peace to serve him all of our days. Jesus himself is our firm hope to carry on in kingdom service all of our days. So let us walk together in him. Will you join me with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we are grateful here for your word. And I pray for a strong sense of confidence that these promises are for us and that we might uh, take hope and hold fast to your word. And in that, would we serve you eagerly, moment by moment, as we seek to serve one another here in this body and as we depart and go into our community as well. Strengthen us, embolden us to serve you all of our days. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.